Good morning. Welcome to this online service. Today's teaching becomes time-stamped from the world of sports as the two contenders for the Super Bowl have been decided. Our entire culture, or at least most of our culture, will build anticipation as eventually Super Bowl 56 will prove the champion. That event will prove who finishes first. Now, I share this with you just as a reminder that our culture loves to celebrate who finishes first. Rarely will there be interviews for the one who has finished second, the one who comes out on top, the champion, the one who finishes first will be celebrated. And at this very moment, our culture builds with anticipation to discover who that first will be. Now, in a diametrically opposed context, Jesus offered us different words concerning first. In Mark chapter 10, verse 44, Jesus actually said, whoever desires to be first must be a servant to all. That becomes for you and for me an incredible view into the Gospels, and particularly for our time today, into the Gospel of Mark. We have before us this incredible reminder that Jesus Christ himself, the highest, the greatest above all things, entered into man's history as a servant. He or she who desires to be first must become a servant to all. And Jesus himself lived this out clearly and perfectly. So I invite you into a study of the Gospel of Mark titled Forward, where we will join our Lord in a fast-moving narrative from the entrance of his ministry to the very conclusion of the resurrection Discovering in this movement forward our own encouragement for moving forward in our lives of faith. So if you have ever felt stuck or plateaued or, or apathetic or indifferent to the things of God and of Jesus, lean into this study as we allow the very narrative of Christ himself to move us forward with him as we desire to follow him and to grow and to move forward in our commitments as Christians. So welcome. So glad you're here. I'd like to share with you from the opening of Mark's gospel, five very specific facts concerning the impact of Jesus. As we see the story of the gospel of Mark unfold, we'll quickly discover what I like to call five irrefutable facts of his impact in our lives. So let's begin reading Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Here in this gospel, Jesus becomes clearly portrayed as, as one who came to serve the Son of God, God Himself, coming to serve. So let's enter in to His story. Beginning, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all of the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore cloth of camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was of locust and honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and to untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, as John, uh, excuse me, as Mark's gospel opens, we see an account of John the Baptist announcing the coming of Christ. We we read actual verses from the Old Testament, both from Malachi and Isaiah, and what we first discover concerning the five impacts that we see here of of Jesus' impact on our lives would be the historical. Of the five irrefutable facts of his impact comes first the historical. Now join me concerning how history parted and entered Christ our Lord. This becomes a a phenomenal reminder of the whole message of the gospel, of the whole of the scriptures. So how do we note that Jesus has stepped in to history? First, consider the history of the gospel of Mark itself. The gospel represents a genre of narrative, popular in the Greco-Roman world from where uh, this writing uh, came concerning the cultural influence. There were other writings of, of that era, very similar to a narrative. But here, because of the inspired word of God, because of the anointing of, of the Holy Spirit on these words, this narrative raises above any other story that that particular era could have embraced because of the power of the truth of Jesus Christ that we see unfolding here. Uh, perhaps some would say that this gospel actually uh, was written somewhere in the mid-first century, perhaps 55 A.D. and and forward, perhaps even as late as 70 A.D. I think probably more like 55 to, to 65 A.D. Because the authorial presence of Mark, John Mark himself, was a traveling companion of Paul. And, and this marks the the uh, particular time in which this gospel was written. Uh, history even teaches us, scholarship teaches us, that Mark gained a, a significant amount of his understanding of Jesus from Peter. And so I love this, this uh, interaction of the first century followers of Christ, uh, someone like John Mark leaning in as a missionary companion to Paul, but learning from an apostle, Peter, and scribing by the hand of God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the narrative we have before us. So first concerning the, the irrefutable fact of of the, of the history, the impact that Jesus made on history, uh, the Gospel of Mark points to that impact. But now having looked at the history of the Gospel itself, let's look at the history of Jesus' ministry. There are two incredibly strong affirmations from history concerning the, the inaugural steps of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now I love how Mark, such a quick, fast-moving narrative, begins right at the moment when Jesus enters the scene. There's, there's no birth narrative as we would find in, in Luke and in Matthew. But quickly the story opens and Jesus is present 
beginning his earthly ministry. And the history of his beginning of ministry becomes evident here in the opening verses we've read. In verses 2 and 3, the Old Testament prophets are quoted. First, Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And then second, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Each of these references describe in detail how there would be a forerunner to Christ, a prophet-like individual who would come and announce that Christ, the Messiah, is finally here. So in direct correlation, you see Mark unfolding historically what the Old Testament had had previously announced. Jesus was prefigured, if you will, in the Old Testament. But as we begin reading this narrative, that prefigured Christ becomes the the fulfillment of all that God has promised. And so we see the, the history of Jesus's ministry uh, through the prophets, uh, Malachi and Isaiah. But then from verse 4 to verse 8, we see this very, very uh, powerful prophetic-like figure, John the Baptist. And John's gospel records uh, similar facts of John the Baptist who proclaimed that the Messiah would come. John was baptizing, but one would come who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, who would bring an inner change and transformation. And so John the Baptist, almost as if Elijah the prophet prefigured him from the Old to the New Testament, John the Baptist announced as that voice of one crying in the wilderness, the coming of our Lord. And so here we see first the fact of, of history, both the history of Old Testament prophecy and even more particularly the history of John the Baptist uh, makes a way for the entrance of Christ. And so this becomes an encouragement for us as we see the narrative of Mark's gospel unfolding. We, we praise God for how incredibly real was the entrance of Jesus on the scene of humanity. And so with this opening fact, the history, the historical impact, I encourage you to realize that your faith in Jesus does not become limited to where you're sitting at the moment or to a denomination or to some um, religious practice. Your faith in Jesus references the greatest historical encounter ever as Jesus entered our lives and here his earthly ministry unfolded. And I'm very, very grateful that we have this truth in front of us. I'm reminded of a very unique interview that took place in 1929 between a man by the name of, uh, by the name of George Varick and, of all people, Albert Einstein. During this interview, Varick posed this question to Einstein. Do you believe in the historic Jesus? Einstein responded <laughs> unquestionably. And then he continued, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth could ever be filled with such life. Now, this statement does not necessarily make Einstein Christian. But nonetheless, I appreciate that here this intellectual mind read the Gospels and realized, oh, on every word exist life. So this irrefutable fact, first, history. Jesus has impacted history. And when we read the words, we read the life 
not just a story, but the greatest historical impact ever, Christ with us. Now let's move to a, a second irrefutable fact of the impact of Jesus on our lives. Second to the historical comes the eternal. Because yes, Jesus among us represents a significant, the highest historical fact that we could embrace. But the life of Jesus, of, of course, does not simply express history. So now we move to the full essence of, of his identity. He's eternal. His, his impact not only references history, but references that which is eternal. So let's continue reading. We pick up in verse 9. Now, in those days, uh, following John the Baptist's proclamation at the River Jordan, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending on him. And a voice out of the heavens said, You're my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast and the angels were ministering to him. As the, as the narrative continues, Jesus appeared at the Jordan. Well, scripture indicates, even from Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Nazareth, uh, geographically, would be located about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And Jesus traveled northward to the north part of the of, of the Sea of Galilee to, to begin calling his disciples. But before he traveled there, he made his way by the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing. Now, now the Baptist was baptizing not for the purpose of converts into Judaism, absolutely not. Nor was the Baptist baptizing because of a daily ritual. There was a Jewish sect uh, in the place of Karam, who uh, who uh, attended to baptism as a daily cleansing ritual. That's not what John does here, because his announcement uh, proclaims uh, repentance of sin. So John was baptizing Gentiles, and likely Gentiles who had already converted to Judaism, but were drawn to this call of confessing their sins before Jehovah and repenting. Jesus approached John the Baptist, and when we read about the baptism account in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3, the inference is that Jesus made a request for, for John to baptize him because quickly John protested. In Matthew's gospel, John said, there's no way that I can baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But then in, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus said, do this because it will fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus was baptized, certainly not in answer to a call of repentance, for Jesus is perfect. But as announced in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus said, I'm to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, meaning to, to announce the beginning of his ministry as God in the flesh, set apart for, for drawing mankind to God. So this becomes a powerful pronouncement. So consider, consider two observations here before we move on beyond the baptism. First, uh, actually maybe three observations. First, uh, God's confirmation. 
Second, Jesus's exaltation. And then third, the wilderness's demonstration. First, God's confirmation. We read about the baptism when Jesus uh, came up out of the waters, the heavens opened and uh, and the spirit like a dove descended upon him. And a voice from heaven said, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Confirmation. Now, Mark's readers likely understood that many of the prophets of the Old Testament had, had similar experiences, not identical, but similar as far as their calling uh, into ministry, certainly being dramatic as they heard God in their heart and, and as they saw visions. I, I consider Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 13 to be one of those uh, familiar visionary encounters wherein the prophet becomes called. Ezekiel would have a similar encounter in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. But here, obviously, there exists really no comparison because God confirmed the identity of his son, God's confirmation. But second, consider Jesus' exaltation because the announcement came, here is the son of God. Now, when you read all of Mark's narrative, you realize that most individuals that knew Jesus were not completely convinced of his full deity until the resurrection. Even many of the disciples, most of the disciples. But here the announcement begins the theme running all through Mark. He came as a servant, but he is the son of God. He is God. He is eternal. And so the emphasis begins with God's confirmation, but then the emphasis rises Jesus's exaltation. He's announced as Son of God, God's voice is heard saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But then consider the the wilderness's demonstration. Verse 12 and 13, Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted. And in Mark's gospel, because the narrative is a quick moving action packed, a story of, of the truth of Jesus Christ and his ministry, uh, there, there's a very brief account of the of the wilderness temptations. You, you read in Matthew chapter four, a more lengthy detailed account, but here the emphasis remains the same as with the other gospel. The wilderness temptations demonstrated the exaltedness of Christ for he truly, he truly ruled in authority and in truth above even Satan himself and all of the, the things in the world that would oppose him. And so we have here powerfully demonstrated God's confirmation, Jesus's exaltation, and then the wilderness's demonstration to confirm the eternal impact Christ has brought, not only the historical, but the eternal. He is the son of God. There was a a 2021 Lifeway research that indicated a a good number of, of Americans and even a good number of of Christians in America who who believe in the true identity of Jesus uh, do not necessarily embrace his eternal existence. And so we proclaim today that yes, his existence is eternal from 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 beginning to end. He is he is the alpha and the omega. He is he is the he is the broad width and span of the complete revelation of God, always existing, coming in the form of man, but fully God and ministering and then reigning forever. His eternal existence becomes a real clear and significant uh, commentary on, on his life as he entered his earthly ministry. So consider not only the historical, but the, the eternal now, as the baptism of Jesus concluded following Mark's narrative, 
we come to a, a second, a third section, if you will, uh, describing now not just the historical and the eternal, but the missional. Now listen to Mark's narrative as clearly this third fact comes to life with Jesus moving from the scene of baptism to preaching and then to the calling of his disciples. Now, after John had been taken into custody, John the Baptist, Jesus came in the Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand to repent and believe in the gospel. In verse 14 of Mark chapter one, um, John no longer serves as the interlocutor of the, of, of the gospel. John has ceased in his preaching and Jesus doesn't just become the one preaching. He's, he becomes the one preaching and the message and the content and the life. And so Jesus began preaching the gospel and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 16, and as Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you to be fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and they followed him. Consider the missional. First, the good news was preached. Jesus preached the good news in Galilee. I love how Mark unfolds the the geography a bit more. Jesus in Nazareth has, has moved uh, from a distance uh, from the river, now close to Jordan. And, and after that baptism, he moves northward around the northern point of the Sea of Galilee. And there he, he begins calling his disciples. But the scripture reminds us from Mark 1, verse 15, that he began preaching in Galilee. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus began preaching the good news. Jesus began preaching the kingdom and Jesus called his disciples. This references the missional impact that Jesus had as his ministry opened. Jesus preached the good news. Galilee referenced a population that primarily were people who were either marginalized or people of the land. They were not of a particular sect, notoriety or influence. So the majority of Galilee uh, fell into this larger category of simply the people of the land. Jesus ministered to those who were broken, those who were diseased, those who were infirm, those who were possessed of dark demonic spirits. Jesus ministered and he preached the good news. So here the preaching of the good news not only emphasizes his missional impact, but the preaching of the good news elevates his preaching above John the Baptist. John the Baptist's preaching was a precursor, a preface, an introduction. But as his preaching concluded and the purpose thereof, Jesus began preaching the good news as the content of the good news. But secondly, Jesus began preaching the kingdom of God. And the emphasis here reminds us that God's kingdom begins to emerge as Jesus enters the scene, now his kingdom will be fulfilled when Christ returns. But the kingdom begins to emerge. And I find this amazing because many Jews believed that the world was under the kingdom and tyranny of Satan. And Jesus came on, this, on the scene to announce the kingdom of God is near. God is beginning his work. 
And therein lies the call to repent and to believe in this good news that the Messiah is here. And then we read on through verse 20 that Jesus called his disciples and in that call announced that they would become fishers of men. Now that phrase fishers of men, I believe is more of a parallelism than a symbolism because as they were out fishing and working hard and seeking, Jesus said, you will continue the energy, but not the goal. You'll continue the activity, but not the purpose. We are fishing for men. We are on a mission to go beyond where we stand, to see others drawn in to the relationship of grace and mercy that God offers. And so what an incredible impact, the missional impact. I love a statement read from, from theologian and church leader, Father John McKenzie. He once observed, if the church were to lose its hierarchy, its clergy, its vast collection of buildings, its store of, of learning amassed over the centuries, even the, even the sacred books, and had to face the world with nothing but the living presence of the risen Jesus and its mission to proclaim the good news to all the nations and people, it would be no less a church than the church of Peter and Paul, and perhaps it might even be more of a church than it is now. If we were to lose all of the intricate details and trappings and programs, and all we had was the presence of the living Christ in us and the mission to take his gospel to the ends of the earth, we would be just as much the church as the first century. And according to McKenzie, probably even more of a church than we are now. If we truly centered on Christ and his mission to take the good news to the ends of the earth. And so, yes, his impact, without a doubt, was, was definitely historical, eternal, and missional. But I turn to a fourth irrefutable fact of the impact of Jesus, the powerful. Let's continue reading. After we read of the account, Jesus called his disciples in verse 21, then they went into Capernaum. And so now Jesus has disciples with him. Again, Mark's, Mark's narrative moves fast. Just in 20 verses, Jesus enters the scene, is baptized. He's gone through the wilderness temptation. He's called his disciples. And now they're on mission. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum. So now they've rounded the northern part of the lake and they're entering into the city of Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching as one having authority and not as a scribe. What an amazing distinction. Uh, verse 22 brings, Jesus taught in authority, not like the scribes. Jesus taught as one with powerful authority instead of one who simply interpreted another man's interpretation of another man's interpretation of the truth. That would be the sequence of how the scribes would learn and, and proclaim the truth. But here Jesus spoke as one, not like the scribes, but one who had authority. So those in the synagogue realized there's something happening in his words that does not resonate when, when simply a scribe interprets the law. So they were astonished that he taught as one having authority. Verse 23, just then there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, what business do you have with me and I with you, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Immediately the news of him spread everywhere in all the surrounding district of Galilee. The powerful. This becomes the fourth irrefutable fact of, of the impact of Jesus, especially vivid as he began his earthly ministry and his impact even today. Notice two very clear distinctions of his power between verse 21 and 28. Power over the law. The law was not a mere interpretation that kept people in bondage to obey in the law. Jesus spoke in power over the confinement of the law. He spoke not as a scribe, but one with authority. Here, the word authority would mean someone who is of a high level of superiority to even that of the scribes who've been divinely appointed, or at least in their own words, divinely appointed to teach the scripture. Here is one higher than them who teaches with authority. And so first, Jesus' power became demonstrated in his teaching. He had power over the law. You might say that this power was demonstrated inside the circle of Hebrew faith, of Jewish faith, the synagogue. Now, in the first century, uh, especially uh, especially at the at the uh, onset of Jesus' ministry, uh, traveling to Jerusalem to the temple would be laborious for many Jews who had begun to scatter uh, throughout the development of the area of Palestine over over the last 100 years of, of what we're reading here. And so many synagogues had been developed. The word synagogue simply means a place to gather. And so many synagogues had begun where Jews could go and hear the, hear the Torah taught, hear the law taught, and then to have their... Sabbath prayer. Here Jesus entered the synagogue in Capernaum to, to teach the truth, to reveal the truth of God's love and the truth of who he is. And while he was teaching, showing his power inside the synagogue over the law, a demonic uh, spirit within a man began crying out. And Jesus looked at him and said, be quiet and come out of him. And the man was healed. So Jesus demonstrated his power over darkness. And so can you imagine the synagogue worshipers that day considering his power over the law? He has authority higher than any we've heard. And he simply spoke to this demonic spirit. And that evil spirit left the man who had been trapped by that darkness. Now, one might question why there would be someone in a synagogue demon possessed. But certainly the demonic spirit was there internally holding this one captive regardless of his Jewish custom or belief. And Jesus freed him, demonstrating his power. And so, yes, we have the historical, the eternal, the missional, the powerful. And now we come to the close of the chapter, the personal. This references the fifth irrefutable fact of the impact of Jesus made known as his earthly ministry unfolds in the first chapter of Mark. Beginning in verse 29, and immediately after they came out of the synagogue, do you see the fast-paced movement here? They came to a house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to her. And he came to her, meaning Jesus, and he raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her. And she waited on them. 
She was healed completely to the point that even her physical health and energy came to an optimum level, and she began serving them through hospitality. Verse 32, when evening came and the sun had set, they began bringing to Jesus all who were ill and those who had been demon-possessed. So there in Capernaum, so many people were brought to the door of Jesus, uh, to the door of Peter's house when they heard of Jesus' healing power. And the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many who were ill with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, earlier, the demon in the synagogue said, I know who you are. And here Jesus said, or it was said of Jesus, he did not allow the demons to speak. Why? Because Jesus did not need the demonic voice to affirm him. In no way would the Son of God be associated with anything related to that which was demonic. And so he would not let them speak of him because his act and power over that darkness was the testimony that Jesus desired to be seen. Verse 35 in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus awakened, left the house, and went away to a secluded place to pray. But Simon and his companions, Peter and his companions, searched for Jesus, found him, and said, Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus said, Now let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, that I may preach there also. For that is what I came to do. And he went into their synagogues throughout Galilee, from city to city, preaching and casting out demons. Verse 40, And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling to his knees before Jesus, and said, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, you be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And Jesus sternly warned him and sent him away and said to him, See that you say nothing, to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But then Jesus went out and began to proclaim it freely to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city. But Jesus went out and, and all who had seen this impact told everyone of what had happened so that Jesus could not even publicly move into the inner city of the places he visited. So he stayed out in unpopulated areas and many people were coming to him. Thus concludes the first chapter of Mark. But notice the personal. From verses 29 through 45, you see encounter after encounter of Jesus engaging with real people in a real crisis, infirmity, uh, possessed by dark spirits. And Jesus healed them what we discover in these verses of the personal is the value of human life Jesus exercised. He stopped and spent time with Peter's mother-in-law and raised her up, fully recovered her. He did not just make her better. He, he, he completely healed her and, and made, her, made her better than she had ever been. And she began serving well. Oh, do you see how Jesus valued the human life. He paused and he healed those who were infirmed. Now, Jesus spent time calling his disciples, but here Jesus does not spend time calling those to serve with him in the mission as much as he simply healed people where they were hurting and where they were sick and, and diseased. 
Not only did he value human life, but he stepped out into all human life. As he was alone praying, the disciples came and said, they're looking for, for you. And Jesus said, well, I can't go back there, but we're going to the next city because they too need to hear the truth and they need to be healed. So Jesus valued human life. He constantly stepped into human life. But then notice in the story of the leper, Jesus had compassion for the human life. That word compassion comes from the Greek spalagnon. Jesus had a deep visceral movement, symbolically speaking, of love for all that were were, were ill and 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 diseased and and held captive by darkness. Jesus had deep compassion for those to whom he ministered. He even said to the leper who was healed, now don't say anything, just go and show yourself to the priest that you may be announced clean. And Jesus' intention was that even the leper could, could be completely restored to the full life and connectedness that he had had before that dreadful disease of leprosy. And so Jesus healed, Jesus touched, and his compassion flowed for the personal. May you and I never forget that even beyond the historical and the eternal and the missional and the powerful, Jesus and his impact was very personal. He came personally for you and for me that we might be ignited on mission with him to serve others in a very personal and real way. I close with uh, a Christianity Today article from 2008. The chief editor of Christianity Today, David Knapp, attended a love God and neighbor dialogue between Muslims and Christians held at Yale University. And this is what editor David Neff concluded. When he witnessed this dialogue at Yale University between Christians and Muslims, he concluded, the Christian participants in this planned dialogue have been taught through the gospel that love should be indiscriminate that we should show mercy to all, exemplified in the story of the Good Samaritan, that love should be shown to all. But the Muslim participants, referencing not the gospel, but Islamic ethics, stated that there were, was no obligation to help those who were drunk or caught in gambling or in other uh, unwise behavior because they had put themselves there. And so this became the conclusion the Muslim view, mercy that was defined and conditioned by justice. The gospel view, justice that was conditioned and defined by mercy. God sent Jesus in history, the eternal son of God, on a mission with power to personally change lives. And all because of God in his justice ex extends love and mercy through Jesus that we might be brought to God. So this references the opening, the prologue of Mark's narrative forward. As the story of Jesus continues to move forward, will you ask Jesus to empower your life, to move forward in your own faith so that you're responding to the Christ we know, 
not to some limited version of goodness or some limited, vague view of Jesus. But as we learn more of Jesus, simply respond to the Jesus that we know that is alive, that has come to us and has established the truth. Oh, I pray that you will move forward in your faith as you continue to focus on Jesus and who he truly is in our lives. Thank you for uh, joining us for this online service. And I know I preached through 45 verses. And I didn't tell you that at the front end. I didn't want you to tune out. But we needed to move through this entire prologue of, of Mark's narrative to fully understand the impact Jesus not only had when his ministry opened, but that impact he has on our lives today. Respond by faith to who Jesus is as the eternal Son of God on mission to draw us to God, full of power over all the darknesses in our life, meeting us personally so that we can know forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration. I pray that you know Jesus. Father God, thank you for teaching us through your word. And I pray for everyone who's heard your word taught this morning. May we respond to Jesus, not to some vague image of the truth, but may we respond in faith to Jesus today. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. On the screen is a website location. Please reach out. Uh, we'd love to have a conversation with you right now as we move forward in our faith. I look forward to Mark chapter two with you next week. God bless.